Appreciate it. And uh, the passage isn't going to make you feel any better. Second <laughs> Samuel 13, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you have children, I would take them out. So uh, chapter 11 and 12, where we've been. So David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He has her husband Uriah killed. Chapter 12, he's confronted by Nathan the prophet on the day that this baby is born. Uh, David repents when he is confronted, uh, and God forgives him. So the penalty for both adultery and murder is death. And Nathan says to David, you're not going to die. You're forgiven. There are consequences. One of the consequences being the son born to David and Bathsheba would die. That happens on his, when he's seven days old. And there are these extended Consequences. It's kind of the, the you reap what you sow. David sowed violence and sexual sin, and so he reaps that in his family, both violence and sexual sin. And chapter 13 is, uh, is a fulfillment of that word of judgment. It's a fulfillment of this word of God through Nathan. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be calamity. God says, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And this chapter 13 is a picture of what that looks like. So that's where we'll pick up chapter 13 and verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, the son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food of my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread. But Amnon refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, so everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here to my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her hand and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where can I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You'll be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But Amnon refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But Amnon refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight, and bolted of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. 
And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister Tamar. Before we jump into the story here, I would imagine in a room this size, there's at least one or two people who have been personally impacted by sexual abuse. That's actually not what this chapter is about. It's about the sins of the father being visited on the sons, and that's the angle we're going to take. But I recognize the material may bring up some memories and some emotions for some of you. And if that is your story, if that's part of your experience, I want to strongly, strongly encourage you to bring those experiences to light. If those are things that you've hidden, if those are things maybe because of shame or pain that you've kept uh, close, that you've not shared, I want to encourage you, find a Christian counselor with experience in trauma and abuse and, and share with them. God's desire, if you have been abused, is to heal you and to restore you. You're not damaged goods. He has good plans and purposes for you. If you'll bring that into the light, as difficult as that may be, he will bring healing and restoration. Just so you know, going in, forgiveness will be a part of that. At some point, he's going to require you to forgive the person who abused you, and he will give you the grace to do that in that moment. But I would strongly encourage you to begin that process. If you don't know any uh, good Christian counselors, you can contact me. And I'll put you in touch with them. Some of you may have abused someone. And the same goes for you. Sexual abuse is not the unforgivable sin. God's desire is to restore you as well. That's going to involve repentance and probably some level of restitution. And that can be scary to think about the consequences of your actions. And I want to encourage you, God will be with you in the midst of those consequences. And freedom is found in Jesus. Even if you wind up in jail, freedom is found in Jesus. And that experience doesn't have to mark you, whether you're someone who was a victim or someone who was a perpetrator. That experience doesn't have to define your life. God is able and he's willing to redeem if you'll give him the opportunity to do so. Back to this story again. It's, it's not about sexual abuse. It's about the sins of the father being visited on the sons. And we see that in Amnon. There's echoes of David's sin with Bathsheba. You probably picked up on some of those parallels. Let me set the players for you. That may have been confusing. So this is not all of David's family. This is just a part of it. So David, the son of Jesse, first wife was Michael. That was Saul's daughter. She doesn't have any kids, so she doesn't come into play. Second wife was Ahinoam, and she has Amnon, who's David's firstborn son. So according to culture... Amnon is the crown prince. He's the heir apparent to succeed David. Now, God has not spoken about who would follow David on the throne, but in the nation surrounding Israel, it's the oldest son succeeds his father. So Amnon would be the presumptive heir to the throne. David's second wife is Abigail. She has a son named Kilia, but he doesn't come into play. He may have died uh, when he was younger. He's not mentioned. Then we have David's third wife. Her name was Makah, and she had these two kids, Absalom and his sister Tamar. And then you can see who her dad is, Talmai. That'll come in towards the end of the story. So Amnon is David's firstborn and first in line for the throne. Absalom is his thirdborn son, but second in line for the throne. Absalom and Tamar are full siblings. Amnon is a half-sibling to both Absalom and Tamar. Then we see this other guy, Jonadab, 
you know, what, what Amnon does is completely his responsibility and is wicked and it is wretched. And I see Jonadab as the one pulling the strings on all of it. If he's not in the mix, I'm not sure that Tamar gets raped. So Jonadab is David's nephew and his cousins to Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. So that's how he is in the mix as well. So the setup, it's against the law to have sex with your half-sister. That's against the Old Testament law. It's found in Leviticus 18. You're not allowed to do that. Amnon says he's, quote, in love, and we'll use that in quotes as you read the story. You recognize it's not love at all that's driving him. But that's what he says. He's in love with Tamar, but he can't, quote, do anything. And you can read between the lines. He can't do anything to her because it's against the law. And he's so obsessed, that word means bound up. He's so frustrated by this desire that he can't act on that he makes himself sick. In Jonadab, a friend of his, a cousin of his says, why do you look so bad? You're the crown prince. And he says, I'm in love with Tamar, Absalom's sister. And Jonadab concocts this scheme. And the whole scheme is designed just to get Tamar and Amnon in a room together. Men and women don't mix socially during this time. So Amnon doesn't have access to Tamar. He can't do anything to her. He's not even around her. And so Jonadab concocts this scheme to get them in the room together. And notice that there's nothing about relationship in anything that Jonadab proposes. I think it's obvious what Amnon wants and Jonadab as a shrewd man, that is someone who knows how to get things done. That's what he's doing. He's getting things done for Amnon. He's giving him what he wants. So the scheme involves, you know, pretending to be sick. Your dad, as a good father, is going to come and find out how you are. And you're going to say, this is what would make me feel better. Have my sister Tamar come and make me special cake. It's like it's our version of chicken soup. Have her come and have her make some chicken soup for me. And that's going to make me feel better. And so Amnon plays his part and David sends Tamar. And there's no reason for her to be nervous or suspicious. And so she goes and makes the chicken soup for Amnon in his room. And then he petulantly won't eat it, and he sends everybody out. There's no witnesses at this point. It's just him. He's gotten rid of all of his servants. And he grabs Tamar, and he pulls her to him and says, sleep with me. And her response is very strong, no. And then she gives him all these reasons. No, this is a wicked thing. This is, this, this is breaking the law of God. No, this would be a disgrace for me personally. Once she is raped, she's no longer a virgin. She's no longer marriage material. That's harsh to say, but it's true in this culture. As a virgin daughter of the king, she would be highly sought after. As a raped daughter of the king, she would not be. So she says that the disgrace for me, I, I, I won't be able to get out from under that. And what about you? You would be a wicked fool for doing this. It echoes that idea we've talked about before about Jacob and Esau, David with Bathsheba, someone trading away their birthright, their inheritance for something very small, a bowl of soup one night with Bathsheba. In this case, you're going to trade away everything you have as the crown prince for a couple of minutes with me. That's a foolish thing to do. Don't do that. Go ask dad. He won't keep me from you. That's probably not true. But she's grasping at straws, just trying to get out of the situation. Talk to the king. See if he will allow you to 
me to marry you. And Amnon doesn't care. He doesn't care anything about any of that. He just wants what he wants, and so he takes it. And he rapes her, and immediately what he thought was love turns to an intense hatred. And that's what sin does. He's disgusted with himself, with what he's done. He can't even look at Tamar anymore because she's a reminder of what he's done. And he kicks her out of his room. Or the NIV says, get this woman out. The Hebrew just says, get this thing out of here. Get it out of here. And her response is, that would be even worse than what you just did to me. And that's hard for us in our mind to, to grasp. In a sense, in the Old Testament culture, to have sex with somebody was to marry them. And so what she's saying is, you've already slept with me, and now if you're going to kick me out, you're not even honoring your obligations. Basically, you've got to take care of me now. You've married me, in a sense, because you've slept with me. There's this interesting verse in Leviticus. If a man marries his sister, the daughter of his father or mother, which Tamar and Amnon, that covers them, and they have sex, it's a disgrace. They're to be publicly removed from their people. He's dishonored his sister and will be held responsible. I wonder if there's an out there. If a man marries his sister, what if they don't have sex? Is it still a disgrace? And I wonder for, I don't know if that was a, a way around for Amnon, if he truly did love Tamar, which he doesn't. If there was a way for him to at least honor what he, to honor her in his obligations that he should have towards her because he slept with her without continuing in sin if he doesn't sleep with her again. I don't know. But she, her life is, in that moment, she is ruined. The ideal for an Israelite woman is to be married and to have boys. She's not going to, it's not on the table for her anymore. And if Amnon's not going to take care of her, she doesn't have any place to go. The idea of a working woman, that's, that's not existent. Women are attached to men. And so she's not going to be able to be attached to another man. That's why it's worse if he kicks her out than even what he did to her. And he doesn't care. He kicks her out anyway. And then you see the fallout for, for, for um, Tamar. She's desolate. Again, she, I mean, she, she, she never gets married, doesn't have children. She lives basically as a widow in the house of her brother Absalom. Absalom seethes. Towards Amnon. He hates him. It's interesting to me that the first question Absalom asks Tamar when he sees her with her robe ripped and ashes on her head and weeping is, has your brother, <coughs> excuse me, has your brother Amnon been with you? I don't know why that's the first thing in his mind. I don't like Absalom at all. I think he's a man of ambition. As we'll see, some people think this episode ruined him. I think that he was already bent and this gave him an excuse to do what was already in his heart. I can't prove that. So when I, when I hear him say that, I think, you knew what was going on. You knew what was going on. And that's the reason you asked her the question. I don't know, again, why that would be the first thing. I can't prove that. That's just my thought. But either way, it doesn't matter. He sees toward Amnon. And David's response as a father, he has the right emotion. He's furious. But he takes no action. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't approach Amnon. He doesn't confront. He doesn't appear to try to take care of Tamar. He leaves that to Absalom, who does kindly bring her in and provide for her. But there's no, there's no move towards addressing the situation. It creates a vacuum, and Absalom steps into that vacuum. 
Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shears were at Baal Hazor, that's a town 14 miles north of Jerusalem, near the border of Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to David and said, your servant has had shears come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go. But David gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged David, so he sent him with Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground. And all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told their king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, see the king's sons have come. It's happened just as your servant said. As Jonadab finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahad, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon. Hearing is a, it's a time of celebration, and Absalom invites David and then all of his sons, his Absalom's half-brothers, to come to this celebration. And just like your parents would say when you try to take them out to dinner, they say, no, don't do that. It's too much. And that's what David says. It's too much. There's too many of us. We'll be a burden to you. And so Absalom says, well, then why don't in your place you send your oldest son, send the crown prince, send Amnon. And David is suspicious. He says, why? 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 Why should he come? And Absalom doesn't answer. He just urges David to come. And David gives in, I think, because he feels guilty. I think he feels guilty because Amnon raped Tamar and he didn't do anything about it. And so when Absalom pushes, he gives Absalom what he wants and he sends Amnon to this celebration. And Absalom's already set a plan in motion with his own guys. And he says, once Amnon's had something to drink, I want you to kill him. And you don't need to worry about the consequences. I'm the one giving you the order. And so he kills him. And when he kills Amnon, all of the other half-brothers, all the other sons, they leave. I think they're afraid Absalom's cleaning house. I think they know he wants to be the king. And I think they think he's going to take out all of the competition right here. He's taking out Amnon, who's the guy right in, in front of him in line. And he's going to take out the rest of us. And so they all bolt. And Absalom leaves. He runs to his maternal grandfather's house, Talmay, who lives in Geshur, which is 80 miles north of Jerusalem. So he gets out of town. 
David hears a rumor that all of his sons are dead. That's not true. Somehow Jonadab is kind of Johnny on the spot and happens to be there and happens to know what the plot and the plan was all along. And then when the sons get there, Jonadab's able to say, see, I told you so. It happened just like I said. And it does. And the king's sons come back in and they all mourn for Amnon's death. And Absalom is living basically in exile for three years. David has a desire to go to him. But again, we see there's an emotion there, but he, he, he can't, won't act on it. He's furious at Amnon for raping Tamar, but there's no action behind it. He desires to be reconciled to Absalom, but he doesn't act on it. And that's how chapter 13 ends. We'll pick up next week's chapter 14 when Absalom does, is returned or does return um, to Jerusalem. So for us, I was thinking about this and a couple of things to take away. Again, it's not so much a story about sexual sin. It's a story about how the sins of David are being played out in the lives of his son. He's, he's sown sexual sin and violence, and that's what his family is reaping. And two, two things I think we can see from that. One, I would say, if you, is to discipline your children. This is easy if you're a biological or if you have children living under your roof. We'll say that. If you have children living under your roof, then it's a very direct application. But I think you can adapt it for anyone who has spiritual influence in the life of another person. At some point, discipline is a piece there. Again, it's clearly applicable to parents with children living under their own roofs. But I think you can adapt it if you have spiritual influence in the life of anyone. What we see with David is his sons are, are, are acting and he is not engaging. He doesn't engage Amnon after he rapes Tamar. He doesn't engage Absalom, either after he kills Amnon or when he desires to be reconciled to him. David, is he's checked out in some ways. He's not not acting. He's He's not engaged. He's not active. He doesn't discipline Amnon in particular. And that lack of discipline creates a vacuum morally and spiritually And that vacuum allows sin to to breed and to grow. I don't trust Absalom's motives. I don't think he gave a rip about Tamar. I think he wanted to take out the guy who was in line in front of him. And what Amnon did to his sister gave him a pretext for doing that. That's what I think. But regardless of his motives, if David had acted, if David would have disciplined Amnon, then it would have removed the pretext. It would have removed the excuse that Absalom had for killing Amnon. Whether his motive, and you may see his motive as pure and right, and you may say Amnon got what he deserved. I would say that Absalom took revenge. It was not, he did not execute justice. But even if you want to see that differently than I do, if David had acted initially, if David would have acted at some point in the two-year period before Absalom invites Amnon to his house, We avoid the whole second half of that story, and it actually goes downhill from there even farther in terms of Absalom's and David's relationship. That David's unwillingness, his inability to engage, to actually discipline his son, creates this moral vacuum. In that moral vacuum, more sin grows, creates the the circumstances that I think Absalom takes advantage of in order to get rid of of, of the heir apparent. But even if you see it as him standing up for his sister, that wasn't his role. David's the one who should have stepped in as her dad, and he doesn't. For us, and you may 
say, well, why this man after God's own heart? Why does he have such a hard time engaging? I think there's two main schools of thought. It's probably some of both. I think you can see David is morally compromised because David has sinned in the same way Amnon sinned. I think there's maybe a there's a sense of which him say, I, I can't I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to see a woman and to desire that woman and to not be able to have that woman. I know what that struggle is like personally, and I wasn't strong enough in the moment either. I wasn't strong enough in the moment either, and so I'm not going to be, maybe he would consider it hypocritical. I'm not going to be hypocritical and judge my son for something that I did as well. Maybe if you want to see David in the best possible light, you can say, maybe he's thinking, you know what, I received mercy from God, and so I want to extend mercy to Amnon. When I was in the exact same spot, when I was, when, when I had sinned with Bathsheba, when I committed adultery, the sexual sin, Rather than God, rather than God punishing me, rather than God judging me and killing me over that, He forgave me, and there are, there have been consequences, but I've been restored, and so I want to extend that same level of grace and mercy to my son. Now we can look at that and say they're not even close. David was confronted by Nathan over his sin. Amnon was never confronted. David repented. Amnon never repented. There were consequences for David that the Lord determined. There's none for Amnon. They're they're not parallel situations at all. But maybe in David's mind, he is giving what he received. He's giving mercy because that's what he received from the Lord. I don't know. Probably some combination. But for whatever reason, he's unable, unwilling to discipline Amnon. And, And maybe as a parent, and again, you can apply this, whether you're a parent or not, whether you have kids under your own roof. Think about the spiritual influence you have in the lives of others. Again, most clearly we see that with parents. As parents, you may find yourself at times struggling to discipline your children. And maybe it's because it makes you feel like a hypocrite. Maybe there's an area in your own life, and this is particularly true as our kids get older and they hit the teen years, where we see them struggling with some of the same things we struggle with. Maybe you know you have a son and you recognize he's getting ensnared in pornography and you would say, well, that's an area where I struggle too. And so there's this unwillingness to engage him on that issue because you feel like a hypocrite. And what I would say to you is if that's you, the solution is, is not to stop disciplining your son. It's to stop looking at pornography. Stop sinning. Don't stop disciplining For some of us, we see our kids and they go through things and they struggle and they make bad choices. And and we remember, oh, that was me. And I remember what that was like. And I remember in that same circumstance, I made a bad choice. And so I feel like a hypocrite to now discipline them over something that I struggled with when I was their age. And what I would say to you there is your moral and spiritual authority is not based on your righteousness. And it's not based on your sinlessness. It's not based on your holiness. It's not based on your track record. Your moral and spiritual authority to discipline your children is based on the fact that God has placed them in your life. He has made you their parents. And part of your job is to teach them the way that they should go. Your past has nothing to do with their future in that sense. You discipline them because God has entrusted them to your care. And that's a function of being a mother or a father. You don't discipline them because you didn't sin in that way when you were 15 or 16 years old. Does that make sense? The basis for your authority is your role as a parent given to you by the Lord. 
not your own righteousness. For some of us, we're softies. We want to extend grace and mercy and actually love it when parents do that. It's an expression of the heart of God towards us. We give our kids good things that they don't deserve. That's grace when we withhold from our children, maybe discipline on some level, punishment that they do deserve. That's mercy. And I think it is it's a tangible expression of the heart of God towards us. But the worst thing, one of the worst things you can do as a parent is to shield your children from the consequences of their choices. Consequences are great teachers. And if you never allow your children to feel the consequences of their choices, you are robbing them of that instruction in their life. And as they get older, the consequences of their choices only are magnified. The consequences are greater if you don't allow them at 8 and 10 and 12 and 14 to experience the consequences of their bad choices. Then what's going to happen when they're 22 and 24 and 28 and you can't shield them anymore? They've lost all of the instruction that they should have had from those bad choices when they were under your roof. And now that they're out on their own. And reality hits and they're beginning to reap what they have sown. They're not going to know how to deal. Don't shield your children from the consequences. Extend grace and mercy as you feel led as mom and dad. I would strongly encourage you to think twice before you step in and buffer your children from all of the consequences of their choices. It's very hard to see your children struggle and suffer. And I say this as someone who has an 18-year-old and an 8-year-old. The older they get, the more significant the consequences of those choices are. Suffer with them when they're eight and when they're ten. It's easier. Let those consequences teach them. There's no right way to discipline. I don't believe you. I think the point from 2 Samuel 13 is engage. Just engage as mom or dad. If you have spiritual influence in someone's life and you see something, choose to engage. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be a drill sergeant. It's not about being self-righteous or holier than that. It's none of that. It's saying, Hebrews 12, God disciplines those he loves. If he doesn't discipline us, we're not legitimate sons and daughters. And so as an expression of love, discipline those that you have spiritual, over whom you have spiritual oversight or to whom you have spiritual influence. And there's not a right way. Just make a choice. To engage. Don't create a moral, spiritual vacuum. The only thing that happens there is more sin increases. The second thing, and this is true for everybody, regardless of your family situation, we see the power of generational sin. We see the sins of David, sexual sin and violence, playing out in the lives of his children. <coughs> God said explicitly this would happen in David's life. But it's also true in our lives as well. Just like you've received a biological inheritance or a physical inheritance from your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents, you also receive a spiritual inheritance from your parents and your great-grandparents and your on back through the generations. And that, for most of us, that legacy, that inheritance is both positive and negative. Second Samuel 13, we only see the negative, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Might as well go ahead and finish strong. Nothing uplifting. So there's, it's just negative in 2 Samuel 13, and so that's what we're going to look at. These negative, the, the, the behavior patterns that we see in the father 
playing out in the lives of the son. And this is we, we see this to be true in our world and our life as well. Children of alcoholics, four times more likely to be alcoholics than children whose parents weren't alcoholics. Children of divorced parents are significantly more likely to divorce than children whose parents remain married. Children of people who are incarcerated are five times more likely to commit a crime than people whose parents weren't incarcerated. There's this, it's, we're 100% responsible for our actions. When Amnon is standing before God, he can't say, well, my dad committed adultery and so I was okay. Or my dad made me do it or Jonadab made me do it or the devil made me do it. He's 100% responsible for the choices that he made. And so are we. We're 100% responsible for our behaviors, for our choices, and for our actions. We can't blame. This is not about blaming your parents for anything. At the same time, I want to recognize we're not blank slates. There's this inner mixing of nature and nurture and environment that causes us to be, we'll say, more prone to certain behaviors than others. There's a, there's a propensity that we all, I'm going to say, inherit from the family in which we are born. And propensity for certain actions and certain behaviors that's based on the actions and behaviors of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. doesn't mean you're doomed to repeat the, the, the mistakes or the sins of your ancestors. It's just a recognition to say, I've received something. I'm not a blank slate. Being in that home through nature, nurture, and environment has conditioned me, for a lack of a better word, in certain ways. And some of those ways are wonderful. We're just not talking about them this morning. And some of those ways can be devastating. And that's what we want to look at here. And we really don't even want to look at it kind of uh, from a distance. What we want to do is say, well, let's just stop. Let's break those generational patterns. If you want to call it generational curse or generational sin or generational bondage, it doesn't matter to me what label you put on it. And I don't fully understand how it works. I just know that it's a reality. And also know that in Christ, we're new creations, that Jesus came to set us free. And and those who the Son sets free are free indeed. And where the Holy Spirit is, there's freedom. And so this morning, those patterns that you may look back one and two and three and four and five generations and see in your family, you can break them this morning in the name of Jesus. And so that's how I want us to close our service this morning. So this is what I want you to think. Well, let me give you one. If you want to dive deeper, because we don't have time, you can look at this book. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. And he has a chapter in there called, I think it's called Looking Back to Move Forward. And so he helps with a, a greater level of detail work through some of these issues. And the tool that he uses, and you can find this tool on the internet, it's called a genogram, which is basically a family tree that looks at all of your dysfunction. That's what you're labeling on the family tree. It's talking about the relational connections people have to one another and the particular behavior patterns. And you can see, you you have to know some things. You've got to know some things about your parents. You've got to know some things about your grandparents. You don't have to know everything, but it's helpful to know a few things. And then you can begin to see some of those patterns. There may be in you, those of you who maybe have, or I I don't know at what age for me, it was probably my mid-30s, I began to recognize in the way that some of the ways I look like my parents. I don't know if that happens younger for some people, but you in your own life may even begin to see some of that bonded. I'm, I'm behaving just like my mom behaved. I said I'd never do that, and I'm doing that now. That's kind of the power of this spiritual inheritance. And a genogram can help you see that on paper and to kind of know what to attack uh, with the Lord. So if you want that, by all means, 
dive in. We're going to skip that step. We don't we just don't have time this morning. And so what I'm going to ask you to do now is to close your eyes, if you're willing. And I'm going to ask the Lord just to, to speak, just to show each of us just one thing, one area where we've received a negative spiritual inheritance. And you can think about that in maybe three categories. One would be behaviors, divorce, addiction, sexual immorality. You can think about that in terms of attitudes or thought patterns, greed, anger. Do you blow up? Your dad blew up. That's how we deal with conflict. Maybe particularly for some of you who maybe had close ties to someone who grew up in the depression, is there this part of you that says there's never going to be enough? I've got to take care of myself. I'm waiting on the other shoe to drop. That can be a negative pattern that we've inherited. And the other is, I would say, conditions, and these aren't necessarily sins. It's, you know, cardiovascular disease, that's hereditary. There are conditions that oftentimes are manifested physically that we do see passed along family lines. And that may be something you've inherited. Maybe you've wrestled with an eating disorder and you, your mom wrestled with an eating disorder and your aunt wrestled with an eating disorder. That may be a family, that's a condition. It's not necessarily not assigning blame there, but it's something that due to nature, nurture, and environment, you're more susceptible to. So, You can think in terms of those three categories, behaviors, attitudes, and conditions. And I'm just going to ask the Lord to speak to us. And when we say that, we don't mean God speaks audibly the way you're hearing me. It's a thought in your mind or maybe kind of a feeling in your heart that you would say, I didn't put that there. So, Holy Spirit, I pray for us. Your desire is to lead us into the freedom that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And so I want to pray for each one of us. God, we bless you for our families. We recognize that you placed us in that family of origin. We're not looking to blame mom and dad or grandmom and granddad for anything. We recognize we're 100% responsible for the choices that we make. And we're not a blank slate. So, God, I pray that in this moment you would speak to every man and woman, every student in this room, and that you would show us just a glimpse of our spiritual inheritance. And we are focusing on the negative. I pray that you would show us that. Show us where we are more prone to certain sinful behaviors because of what we've received through our family tree. So would you speak to each one of us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Okay, 
Y'all could look up if you would. So, like, so for me, I may say, I can look and I can see in the guys in my family, I can see a passivity. And so I'm, I'm going to say that's a negative pattern that I've inherited, where I can tend to pull away from conflict. I can tend to disengage when the heat gets turned up. So I can, I can do that, and that can cause problems, what we see with David here. And so that's the one for me that I'll own this morning. There are others, but that's the one for me this morning. And I don't know what you felt like the Lord spoke to you, but we're going to try something that we don't normally do here at Stonebridge. We're going to read and pray some prayers corporately. So this is, these are corporate prayers. And in the blanks, you're going to fill in the specifics. So the first thing, we are going to thank the Lord for some good things that we received. Most of you can come up with that off the top of your head. And then on that second blank, we're going to say the one that you just popped into your mind. That one that's a bit more negative. And we're going to pray these prayers out loud. There's something about saying it that helps solidify, I think, reality for us. You certainly don't need to scream and you don't need to shout, but the words do need to actually come out of your mouth. Okay? I'll be on the microphone, so probably nobody's going to hear anything except what I'm saying. And we're going to read through these prayers. Is that good? Okay, so if y'all would stand, we're going to read through these prayers together, and you just read along with me. Father, I acknowledge your sovereignty in my life. You formed me, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. You placed me in my family of origin, and I'm grateful for their contribution to my life. Specifically, I thank you for giving me through my family. Father, I acknowledge that my family wasn't perfect and that perfect has flowed into my life as a spiritual inheritance. I do not want to continue that legacy. I recognize that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, every curse has been broken. And I'm asking you now to break that generational pattern in my life. Father, stop the flow of that curse in the name of Jesus. We have a couple of more slides. Go ahead, please. I pray, Father, that you would close every door in my heart and in my life that has been open to the enemy through these generational patterns. I pray that every scheme of the devil to steal and kill and destroy in my life would be reversed. That what he meant for evil, you would use for my good. Father, I ask that you would restore to me the years the locust has eaten and that you would bestow on me a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Father, I acknowledge your plans and purposes for me are for my good, and I pray that I would be able to say the boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Jesus, I thank you for dying in my place and for bearing every curse. I thank you, Jesus, that in you I'm a new creation and all of the old is gone. Holy Spirit, I thank you for living within me and empowering me to live into the future the Father has prepared for me. In Jesus' name, amen. That's good. So here's how we're going to close. It's 1028. We're going to run over, but it's okay. I already told the um, Pathfinder um, leadership, they know we're going to run a few minutes late. We're going to close with worship, and that's a very appropriate response. You may say, I believe that. Like, I'm going to live new now. 
and you may want to respond in worship. We're also going to have ministry teams and you may want someone to pray with you. And there's there is some power in sharing. Hey, this is the generational pattern I want broken and I want y'all to agree with me about that. For some of you who still have children under your home, under your roof, you may say, what am I passing on to my kids? Because you're passing something on to them. It's not going to be perfect because you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. They're all going to have to go to counseling at some point. But let's we can minimize it. We can minimize it. And so maybe as a husband and wife, if you're in here together, you want to say, what are we intentionally giving to our children? Are there negative patterns that they're seeing in us? Maybe you, you want to begin to ask the Lord, what are the good things that we want to give to them? What are the things, God, that you have given to us? And we want to make sure our children are receiving that from us. We don't almost every one of you has a will and you've already taken care of all of that stuff. So what about spiritually? What's the will look like? What are you going to be giving to your children? And maybe you want to have somebody pray with you about that, regardless of their age. Maybe you want to have them pray with you about that. So I'm going to say a brief prayer. Well, Bo is going to lead us in worship ministry teams. You guys can come up. Y'all come forward as you feel prompted. Stay in your seat and worship if you'd rather do that. And Bo will dismiss us after this song. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would seal the work. That can almost seem robotic, reading prayers off a screen. But we believe that there's power in that because of Jesus. Not because we said some magic formula, but because Jesus has broken every curse. And in him there's freedom. And that's my prayer. For the men and the women in this room. God, I pray that because of the work done at, on, at 1025 on April 29th, 2018. God, I pray that whole families, their trajectory would shift. That patterns that have repeated for generation after generation after generation would be broken. And that new patterns of righteousness would be formed in the lives of the men and the women in this room. Again, not because we're anything great, but because you've given us your spirit who dwells within us, who's conforming us into the image of Jesus, and who's empowering us to live a life of righteousness before you. In Jesus' name, amen.